Welcome back to Pursuing Justice. I'm your host, Harriet Hendel. The last time on our show, we met two men, Terrell Carter and Kempis Songster, known as Rel and Ghani. Two men who spent a combined total of 60 years behind bars. They shared their story of their journey from prison to freedom on last week's podcast, but today we're taking a little different path, talking about a sentence given to so many in our country, that of life without parole, also known as death by incarceration. Both of my guests were co-authors of a lengthy article published in Northwestern Law Journal last October 2021, along with Professor Rachel Lopez, who teaches law at Drexel University. The article is titled Redeeming Justice. Ghani is a founding member of the Right to Redemption Committee. Now, as we ended last time, we were just about to delve into a topic that we didn't really have time to you know, explore, and I, I'd like to pick it up where we left off. So please, uh, listeners, do listen to part one. So I wanted to ask you, Ghani, um, if you could explain the Amistad Law Program, something you're involved in, and its mission. You're also involved in a program called Healing Futures. Can you tell us a little bit about both? Oh, sure. Thank you. And let me I just say, uh, both Rel and I were founding members of uh, Right to Redemption. Rel was actually the chairman. Okay, good. Thank you for the correction. All right. Yeah, we both we both uh, started that group together. Um, Yeah, so again, um, I um, was released from from prison on December 28th, 2017. A little over a month later, at the beginning of February, I was um, hired by the Amistad Law Project. The Amistad Law Project is a a grassroots abolitionist and legal collective and organizing project in the city of Philadelphia. They were a group of people. At the time, it was only three people when they hired me. was executive director, Chris Hernandez, uh, Chris Henderson, um, policy director Nikki Grant and organizing director Sean Damon and and they were also friends of ours too. They were there with us coming into the prison and supporting us with the establishment of the of right to redemption. Right, they would visit us, give us legal advice, help us organize certain community initiatives on the streets, but they were also there to welcome us when we came home. And for me, they provided me with not only my first um, job um, since I was released, but was my, my first job in my whole life. Remember, I went to prison at the age of 15, you know, um, and so I didn't really have any job at the age of 15. And I wouldn't count prison uh, wages at 19 cents an hour as employment, you know. Not really. We, 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 we call that what it is. We call it slavery, you know, but, um, but the Amistad Law Project mission is to, to advocate for, for policy changes and changes in the law that they believe represent an affront or violation to human rights. You know, they advocated for the release of people 
whose incarceration was flagrantly unjust, either because of wrongful convictions or um, abuse in prison. And usually the cases that they would take in take on are cases that rep would represent a new precedent being set that would amount to, um, you know, a change for more than just this person in the long run. They sued the DOC for abuses against um, incarcerated people. They, uh, they advocated for the passage of legislation like SB 942 or HB 135, which was about the ending of death by incarceration sentences, advocated for legislation to end Pennsylvania's practice of sentencing people to death by incarceration who had second degree murder um, and things like that. Um, they advocated for the release of people who were immunocompromised behind the walls and elderly people and people who were geriatric um, in the age of the pandemic, in the age of COVID-19 and things like that. So Amistad Law Project was one of those, um, uh, what, what can I find? A word I'm trying to think of is... Uh, change maker. Change makers, definitely a change maker, the abolitionist and revolutionary legal collective but they kind of like acted as a thermostat, you know, a legal thermostat and a moral thermostat to, to keep the system honest, you know, and to keep the system, you know, from varying too far into unchecked and unfettered abuse. You know what I mean? Um, it's one of those voices that we needed in our community. It's the voices of legal consciousness, right? Kind of like the abolitionist law center. And like I said, they were our allies in the establishment of, the right to redemption. Um, my new position is as program manager of a restorative justice diversion program for the Youth Art and Self-Empowerment Project. And that program involves the district attorney's office referring cases of young people that they've apprehended for various charges ranging from burglary to aggravated assault to, to felony theft to arson even, right? sending cases um, of young people to us. And then we work on bringing the young person that we call responsible youth, not young offenders. We call them responsible youth. We bring them face to face with the person that they've harmed over the course of a few weeks. We bring them face to face with the person that they've harmed to work out the accountability and reconciliation process um, between the two and for the community to come up with a way or a restorative plan for how the young person is going to repair the harm to this person that they hurt. That's what right. That's they offer an apology or an accountability statement, and then they spend a minimum of two months to seven months doing something that the person harmed wants them to do in a meaningful way, not just in a vengeful way, but in a meaningful way to make things right with them and help repair the harm to them. That, that's what accountability should look like, right? And once they've done that, once they've done that, um, um, Harriet, we let the district attorney's office know this young person has completed the program and then no charges are filed. It's like the mm. charge never existed. No probation or jail time is on the table anymore. No criminal record is entered. And then we have a community celebration. We celebrate each case, not celebrating that some young person got off soft for causing harm, but we celebrate our capacity as a community to circle our wagons around our young people and around our people who've been hurt by violence. 
we celebrate our capacity to work through our differences and our trespassing trespasses against each other without handcuffs and cages. That's great. Wonderful. Wow. Um, all right. Now, Rel, um, I'm now going to move into this whole issue of redemption. And I'm sure both of you have given this question. I'm going to ask you uh, plenty of, of thought. Are all people capable of redemption? And the flip side of that question, are there people incapable of redemption? So since Ghani had his say, we'll let you lead into this question. What do you think? So, um, I believe everybody has the capacity to redeem themselves. Now, whether or not people exercise that capacity is something different. Um, but I think everybody has the ability. Um, and I think what happens a lot of times is the system doesn't allow for people to discover that they can be redeemed. Because the system is one of, uh, it's a punitive system that literally doesn't leave room for healing or redemption. So right. if, 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 if people don't understand what it means to atone, then they won't atone. Not that they, not that they don't have the capacity to, to atone. They just don't realize it. And then there's nothing in place that will help them get to that realization. Right. Um, but everybody has the capacity. I think that's one of the things that separates human beings from animals is the fact that we all that we do have the ability or the capacity to atone for a wrong that we've done. Right. I think that's what makes us uniquely human. I agree. Now, let's focus just very briefly on the very young, very much like you, Ghani, teenagers who are 15, 16, aren't they able to change and mature? And if, if so, why have we given young teens a sentence of death by incarceration? Fortunately, in 2012 and 2016, the Supreme Court ruled that mandatory life without parole cannot be given to children any longer and it became retroactive in 2016. You, you are both shining examples of the ability to change and proof that change is possible. How, how did that happen and how difficult was it? And where did the motivation come from to, to change? But you can both take that question. Um, so for me, I think um, it happened early. Like, I think I've always, I never wanted to be the worst version of myself. I never wanted to be that. I've always wanted to be better. Um, and so remember I said earlier today, when the moment that they placed the handcuffs on my wrist, my journey began like, the, you know, and it wasn't, it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't something that, um, it wasn't something that was easy. It wasn't a straight line to being better. It was full full of uh, potholes and curves and twists. And so I didn't arrive to where I'm at 
on this linear line like that that's not how it happened it was um it was a it was a struggle because i was young and so it it's hard to kind of like um um be the change that you want to be when you have no help that's right i had to figure a lot of this stuff out on my own or from other people who were similarly situated that wanted the same things and so we were all kind of like young guys coming through penitentiaries where being the best version of yourself wasn't something that everybody was doing. Um, right. It was going literally going against the grain. And so it took a, a certain amount of, of strength. And I think I, I kind of credit my ability to transform to um, my, my family and the things that they instilled in me before I came to prison, things that were always there but I kind of like um, was kind of like drowned out by the noise of, of of inferiority complexes and not feeling good about myself. Yeah, but um, not not everybody is lucky enough to have family not, support. Not everybody is lucky enough. I was extremely fortunate in having the kind of people in my life that I that I had, and I think more than anything, that kind of facilitated my ability to become who I am. So right. for example, um, my father, my father used to tell me all kinds of stuff when I was young, stuff that I didn't want to hear. Um, I thought he was out of touch. I think he, I thought he didn't understand anything. And so I didn't listen to anything that he said. And he was trying to save me from myself. Sure. Right. And so about a year ago, my father died in, in, in 2000. So about a year ago, I kept all his mail. And so I'm, I said, you know what? I'm just go read my father's letters that he been writing me over years. So as I'm reading these letters, it blew my mind because everything that I thought that I thought was my thoughts, he was talking about in those letters. Mm -hmm. And so my ability to be who I am right now is a direct result of what my father was telling me all those years, what my mother been trying to tell me all those years. Those things were the foundation that I needed to become or springboard to the Terrell you see today. Right. All right. Um, Ghani, I, I would like you to answer that question, but I, I really want, I want to get to uh, the right to redemption committee. So mm -hmm. I, I really want to get into that. So would you tell us about that committee, its purpose, its mission and its accomplishments? Take him saying off mute. Thank you, Harriet. And right. I would like to answer the other question too, but okay, the, sure. No, no, but for the purposes of time. Time. Okay. Let me just say some historical context might be important to understand about the right to redemption. So when I both Rel and I, by the way, when when we were in Villanova's uh, bachelor's program at Greater Ford uh, Prison some years back. Um, we both read a piece written by one of our, our professors, uh, Dr. Jill McCorkle, entitled uh, Going to the Crack House. Mm -hmm. um, and um, it was about women at a prison and the struggles they were embattled with there. Um, and that piece, you know, Jill introduced us to this these concepts of free space and critical space. 
And free space might be like those spaces college students go to to feel free from institutional regulations, for instance. Parties, hangout spots, et cetera, might be free spaces in the, in the college uh, scheme of things. Um, spaces where you can let it all hang out, so to speak. Critical space in the piece was the room where the women in the, in the women's prison would meet to secretly commiserate with each other, share grievances about the prison and organize to resist. Um, we didn't have too many free spaces in prison, as you might imagine, but we had critical spaces, um, spaces that we discovered or created to, um, to hold on to our humanity and to find up to resist what we thought were, was unjust. Abolition, change, for instance, um, is impossible without critical spaces. It's critical spaces where, is where abolition is born and then critical spaces where right to redemption is born, right? Um, it was in a critical space that right to, the right to redemption group was formed. The then president of Greater Ford's Lifers uh, Incorporated, Wayne Battles, he saw as many of us in that prison and in the prisons all around the state of Pennsylvania saw that the fight to end life without parole in, in Pennsylvania was in a static and, and stagnant situation and that it needed a boost. You know, he didn't have any ideas beyond calling together a group of individuals that he had come to know over some years in prison who had, had exhibited some kind of activism and advocacy and creativity, critical intellect, or some kind of leadership quality that might prove to be valuable in the effort to turn things around in the fight for parole eligibility for lifers. And perhaps that was the most important idea of all, you know, just to call people together. Mm. So we first met one evening seated in a circle of chairs in the prison auditorium. Then, Then we started meeting once a week in the in the prison gym area, or what was called uh, the field house at Greater Ford. Some nights we met in a small meeting room seated around a table of uh, in the field house. Other nights we met in the weightlifting room, surrounded by iron bars, plates, and dumbbells. You know, mm -hmm. so we fluctuated between meeting uh, meeting spaces that represented collective mind, or muscles, brains, or brawn. And so as you might imagine about bringing any group of human beings together, we had different assessments about why the fight to end life without parole was where it was. And just as many ideas for what to do to change things, right? And, and that was cool because you know how they say, if you're in a room where everybody's thinking the same, then nobody's thinking very much. <laughs> but after months of debating and fleshing things out, we started to find synthesis around some ideas, ideas that we would become sort of our tenants, if you will. Right. And they would be encapsulated in the name we agreed on for our group, uh, mm -hmm. Right to Redemption or R2R. I was no fan of the word right uh, of of the word redemption personally, by the way, because I knew what it meant. Uh, it meant uh, a buying back or repurchasing, right? A property that you sold or, or you know, it was a financial transaction. And to have, and to assume that Justice Alito's conceptual framework around redemption, when he asked the question that you asked Rel, if there are any human beings that are beyond the capacity for redemption, right? To assume that Alito's conceptual framework around redemption within the context of 
his question at the time he asked it, um, I assume it wasn't informed by any of the legal definitions of redemption. I, I, I assume, and we all eventually assume that his concept of redemption, at least when he asked that question, was the definition of redemption that we had all come to know over the years, which was kind of like this moral and spiritual transformation, right. right? Which was becoming better than a previous self with making things right with people that you've hurt, with communities that you've hurt and so on and so forth, right? Um, and so that compelled us to like go on a search, you know, for what redemption meant to different cultures all around the world. You know, one thing we knew was that all people had in common in all cultures, even though we might believe things differently, there seemed to be a common belief that human beings have the capacity for transformation and change, that human beings had the capacity to atone after you had done wrong. And that became kind of like the seed principle for right to redemption. Can I just can I just interject something real quick? Very quickly, because we were almost out of time and I have an important question to ask, but go ahead. One of the things that we thought was extremely important was language mm -hmm. and how language just was just as in, imprisoning as concrete or iron bars. Mm -hmm. We figured the first thing that we had to do was check the language that we used in order to um, um, in order to talk about freedom briefly. Okay. So my question is, how do we convince people, when I say people, I mean those of us out here, that though someone committed a serious crime and they've already done their time, that they deserve a second chance, like, you know, uh, you both, where you had life sentences, but you left prison long before those life sentences you know, came to be. How do, how do we know that a person really has changed and that they deserve a second chance? So we only have a very few minutes left. Go ahead. Usually in situations like ours, you, 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 you will have demonstrable characteristics. Like, it's not like, you, you know, you, you, you picking names out of a hat and just saying, okay, right. let this guy go. Like sure. usually guys have demonstrated throughout the years who they are. Um, and so I know like people might say, well, they might be tricking us. Like, but mm -hmm. for the most part, a person is going to be who they are at, you know, eventually it's going to show. So you can't fool everybody all the time. True. And so what happens is you look at the record because that's all we have to judge by. That's what we went to prison by. That's all we have to judge by. And so you look at the record, and if guys have demonstrated positive, transformative characteristics over the course of however much time that they deem is necessary, then you can give them opportunities or at least give them a hearing so that they can demonstrate um, these uh, uh, characteristics. That you walked right into something I wanted to say before we, we have to end. In some countries, offenders are offered a reevaluation of their sentence automatically mm -hmm. every few years. Many nations don't even give a life sentence. 
And that I would think would be your goal to um, put in to our system that chance for um, looking at what have you done over the last 20 years and let's see if perhaps um, you are ready to be released. And we, we don't do that. Is, is that something you would like to see happen here? Definitely, Harriet. And let me just say back to your question about how can we tell that yeah. somebody deserves um, a second freedom, chance. Yeah, freedom or, a, or a, deserves a second chance. I, for me personally, I thought that that question kind of like doesn't get at um, the questions we really need to ask mm -hmm. as a community and as a society. For me, it's not about whether the person who's done wrong deserves this or deserves that, whether they deserve mm -hmm. to, to die in prison or deserves to be free. It's what the community deserves from that person. Mm. What does the community deserve from me? What does the community deserve from Rel? Right? Once we begin to ask that question, then yeah. I think we, you know, we can think about things differently because it's bigger than than, than me. It's bigger than Rel. It's bigger than the person that has done the harm. It's also about the person who was harmed and the community, right? And what's the promise that's made to that person and to the community by the system as is that this person sitting away, rotting and vegetating as a prison cell is what you deserve. Or, or it's about what this person deserves, but it's, it's, it's never about what the person deserves, right? Mm -hmm. That is marketed as accountability, and it's not necessarily account accountability. A person could sit in a cell and not take ownership for what they have done. True. Right. Accountability has to arise from within the person. Right. Right. It requires agency. And me sitting in a prison cell vegetating, I don't have to be remorseful. I don't have to be apologetic. You know, I could even have it in my mind that I would do this again if I have the chance. Right. But that's not accountability for what I've done. I'm just being in a passive actor of punishment. Real accountability is when the person who's done wrong takes ownership for that wrong and wants to be hands on with trying to make things right and right. bring some kind of balance where their act, their senseless violent act might have left in a state of imbalance, right? And so it's about whether the community deserves that or deserves for the person to ride away. And so the community has to interject in itself, interject itself into this narrative. What does the community deserve from me? I am happy to, uh, I, I, I couldn't be prouder to, um, to say now that the community has expressed that it wants more and it requires more of me. Of me. It puts a bigger responsibility of me. The, the community requires service from me that could be done to greater effect on the outside than just sitting in a cell vegetating, generating. We, we are absolutely out of time. I feel so bad. There's so much we could continue to talk about, but we certainly have begun. And that I guess is what is most important. So I, I want to thank you both for your time today and your willingness to share your, your stories. Um, before we go, a quick reminder that October 2nd is Wrongful Conviction Day. 3,237 people have been exonerated since records were kept beginning in 1989. 
I ask my listeners to reach out to the Innocence Organization in your state and donate what you can. Each case is done pro bono for every client needing help. Thank you for listening today. This is Pursuing Justice. I'm Harriet Hendel. See you next time on my podcast. Thank you again. Thanks for listening to my podcast today. You have been listening to Pursuing Justice on Society Bites Radio. And I'm your host, Harriet Hendel.